It was the uh, pioneering psychologist and psychoanalyst, Sigmund Freud, who once defined the pleasure principle, as he called it, as the drive to seek pleasure and avoid pain wherever possible. Human beings were generally motivated by a desire for immediate gratification, he argued. It was only as they grew older, more mature and more reasonable that they learned to temper this and to recognize that it was sometimes wiser to defer short-term satisfaction in the interests of longer-term fulfillment. And of course, we can see evidence of the power of something like this pleasure principle pretty much everywhere we look. To take two of the most obvious examples, according to figures reported by creditcards.com Canada in July 2016, Canadians owed nearly $600 billion in consumer credit. Much of that, no doubt, spent on indulging desires for products and services that they couldn't really afford. An article from February this year, meanwhile, reported that pornography had become a $97 billion global industry. Porn websites received, and I quote, more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. And at least 30% of all data transferred across the internet was connected with it. Many in North America now seem to assume that sexual gratification is such a basic human need that biblical constraints against sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage are outdated relics of the past. The explosion in online porn consumption arguably reflects that moral breakdown. So, many would argue, do the very high divorce rate and numerous other social phenomena. And the church is hardly immune from these challenges, of course. The situation, in fact, has often been aggravated by the teachings of prominent leaders, some from mainline denominations, like the one that I just left, have simply rejected many traditional biblical standards. Others, including some pastors of major congregations in North America of a more conservative stripe, have taught what is essentially a false gospel that stresses the personal benefits of being a Christian so highly that the sacrificial costs of following Jesus are almost reduced to incidental expenses. I'll return to these issues on another occasion. But the bottom line this morning is that in a world where people have come to believe that you can quite literally have it all, pain and want have become unwelcome imposters to be avoided at all costs. The trouble is that this is not really 
a very Christian view of life, as we soon discover when we examine the example of the Apostle Paul in this morning's reading from Colossians 1 and 2. Such is the value that Paul places on his proclamation of the Gospel and such is his strength of purpose in pursuing his mission that he sees any sacrifice that he incurs in the process as predictable and even, in a sense, desirable in the cause of Christ. So striving for Christ, whatever the cost, becomes a badge of honour rather than an emblem of defeat. Some 30 years ago, when I was working as a magazine journalist in the UK, I was appointed assistant editor of an interdenominational Christian monthly named Leadership Today. But I had only been there three months when my boss moved on and I became editor of what I soon discovered was a prominent but declining and money-losing publication. It took a little time to start to understand why the magazine had the problems that it did. But I eventually came to the conclusion that it had basically been misdirected from its previous mandate as Today, not Leadership Today, which was a general news and features publication produced for an educated but quite diverse readership. It had become too specialised and its title which now included the word leadership, far from attracting readers, actually drove many away. Because they simply didn't think of themselves in those terms. In many ways, you might see this last problem as a typically British one. The American publication Leadership Journal was very much a going concern and its readership extended well beyond pastors. But in the UK, people weren't so keen to identify themselves as leaders, even if they actually were. That may have been a reflection of typical British reserve, or perhaps what the Australians sometimes call the tall poppy syndrome, which is still very much in evidence, as far as I can tell. Whatever the reasons, what we ended up doing was going back to basics. We totally redesigned the magazine, but we returned to the previous title, which was much better known, and to more familiar content. We also marketed it to a much wider readership, and within months, circulation had turned around quite sharply, and we were back in the black. And one of the most important things that I learned from that experience was the importance of staying true to your message and to your goals in any kind of communications process, even if you have to repackage them from time to time. And the same kind of consistency is obviously vital in the church where we have the timeless privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is certainly in no doubt about the basic content of his proclamation in verses 25 through 29. I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me, he begins. And what is that? 
to present to you the word of God in its fullness. He continues, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I suggested last week that Paul probably wrote Colossians in about 60 AD, when he was in prison for his faith in Rome, And he wrote it to a group of Christians in the Roman province of Asia. And one of his major focuses was on countering what scholars have often called the Colossian heresy, which involved the claim, according to one of the leading scholars, that the fullness of God could be appreciated only by mystical experience for which ascetic preparation was necessary. But the Apostle's response to such false teaching is ultimately very simple and very practical and it centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when Paul uses the word mystery in verses 26 and 27, he's not referring to any kind of esoteric, super-spiritual phenomenon. He's not talking about a modern-day crime mystery like on PBS. He's not talking about, he's talking about something much more important. He's referring to the revelation of Christ. And in particular, to the fact that this is now open to all, both Jew and Gentile, without distinction. The Christian faith is not, and never has been, the private preserve of a select few. Still less does it belong within the enclosed confines of a secret society. Secret societies tend to be unhealthy anyway, especially when they involve claims to secret knowledge or oath-taking. No, the Gospel, and indeed the Church, should be all about openness and transparency because that's how Christ was and is and that's what Paul has to say is for everyone. We proclaim Christ, he says in verses 28 to 29, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The heart of this this wonderful Christian message that we, like Paul, have to share then is not an abstract argument. It's not an objective proposition. It's not a scientific equation or a mystical riddle. It's ultimately a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And it's in and through relationship with him that we're not only saved ourselves, but we have a wonderful message of salvation to share with all humankind. On October the 6th, 1909, a man named Charles Cocking took Vancouver's new and first ever auto ambulance out for its first test drive. But things didn't turn out as he might have hoped. Out for a trial spin at noon, the Vancouver province reported, 
the new city police ambulance ran over and almost instantly killed Mr. C.F. Kites, who was crossing Pender Street at the Granville Corner, when the heavy automobile, having dodged between two streetcars which were proceeding in opposite directions, struck him in the back. The Vancouver World, another newspaper at that time, reported that Kais's most recent address was in Seattle. And this unfortunate man was passing through Vancouver on a hunting trip to Powell Lake. Only a day before, according to John Mackey, writing in the Vancouver Sun last year, the same newspaper had rhapsodized about how the $5,200 ambulance, that's a lot of money then, $5,200 ambulance was a thing of beauty. It had just arrived in Vancouver from Belfast Island where it had been built, and as well as a six-cylinder, 30-horsepower engine placed directly under the driver's seat so as to minimize the vibration, the world noted, the vehicle's body, imagine this, is constructed of the finest English ash with bagwood panels and highly varnished. The ambulance may have been handsome, but Vancouver's chief of police, Rufus G. Chamberlain, wasn't that impressed from the start, according to Mackey. After its disastrous and fatal test run, some members of the city's police and fire committee were understandably of the opinion that the machine should not be accepted. As a result, the vehicle was soon returned to the manufacturer without ever going into action properly. And in July 1910, the city replaced it with an American auto similar to vehicles in use in Seattle and Portland. The terrible irony of the test run of Vancouver's first ambulance was not lost on contemporary observers as well as later reporters. A vehicle intended to save lives had actually cost one. So this tragic story offers not only a vivid reminder of the potential cost of unintended consequences, but of what can happen when any instrument, vehicular or otherwise, fails to achieve its intended purpose. Honouring our purposes can even become a matter of life or death. And that's especially the case when we have something really important to do, like sharing gospel ministry. The Apostle Paul is fully cognizant of the importance of this responsibility. For him, communicating the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is his life's work. So it's Paul's main goal in verse 29. To this end I strenuously contend, he says, with the, all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And that purpose is our purpose as the church too. 
But getting to know Christ is also a lifelong process. So when, when the Apostle writes of his purpose for his readers in Colossae, Laodicea and elsewhere, in chapter 2, verse 2 following, his focus is pastoral as well as evangelistic. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, he writes, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, to put it more simply, Paul wants his readers to grow. He wants them to become more mature and knowledgeable in their faith. He's also concerned, as we've already established, to protect them from error. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, the Apostle continues. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. In that sense, for Paul, Christian love and Christian unity are mutually dependent. Just like love and marriage, in the famous old song from My Fair Lady, you can't have one without the other. But growth is impossible without clear knowledge and without a firm foundation of Christian truth centered in Christ. That's one of the main reasons why the ministry of preaching and teaching will always be so important in the church and why we should do everything in our power to ensure that we lead people into truth, not error. Because false teaching is not just an intellectual problem. It leads to moral and communal troubles as well, as we can see all too clearly in many churches right now. So Paul's proclamation and Paul's purpose in ministry are very clear and he couldn't state them much more forcefully but they also carry a deep personal cost which he's quite willing to pay and what he says about his pain and suffering can surely challenge us all. James Dobson once wrote about the renowned Cambridge astrophysicist Dr. Stephen Hawking, who has arguably advanced the general theory of relativity further than any person since Albert Einstein. As many of you will know well, Hawking is afflicted with ALS syndrome, which will eventually, one way or another, take his life. He's been confined to a wheelchair for years where he can do little more than sit and think. He's lost the ability to speak and must now communicate by means of a computer which he operates through tiny muscular movements. Yet for Hawking, such immense suffering has also been in some sense a blessing. Before he became ill, he called his life a pointless existence. He drank too much, he said, and did little work. But since his diagnosis, Hawking has actually claimed to be happier than ever before. How so? 
When one's expectations are reduced to zero, he once said in a magazine interview, one really appreciates everything that one does have. When one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one does have. We may never have faced such an extreme predicament. Hopefully we have not and never will, but we would all surely recognise that good can come out of ill. When we strive to overcome despite great suffering, especially, especially for the sake of the Gospel. And Paul's argument in our passage even takes that one step further when he suggests that it can be a source of joy or at least satisfaction when one suffers for the sake of Christ and his church. Now I rejoice, he says in verse 24, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking with regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church he's not suggesting here I think that Christ's sufferings on behalf of humanity have been in any way deficient or insufficient to pay the price for our mistakes nor is he arguing that he can do anything to add to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross no one can do that nor is there any need to but Paul is claiming to follow Christ's example because he understands in a very profound way as the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has suggested the vocation of the church as being to suffer Christ. Verse 29 hits a similar theme as the Apostle continues to describe his struggle. So does verse 1 of chapter 2. Yet Paul is not boasting in our passage. He's simply describing the no doubt very present reality for him as he writes from prison that tough times are only to be expected when we truly exert ourselves when we're really striving for Christ, to quote my sermon title, and for his kingdom. All of which obviously raises some serious questions of anyone who's prepared to take this message seriously, especially in a modern culture, even in the church, where we so often seem to do whatever we can to avoid personal discomfort inconvenience or sacrifice. The fact is, quite frankly, that although we are promised great blessings when we come to faith and we should never underestimate them, the pleasure principle is not a Christian principle. God is more concerned that we grow in faith and Christian character than that we sail through life without a care in the world. What is more, when we truly know Christ, he can make sense. He can even make value out of our very worst hardships, especially when, like Paul, we give sacrificially of ourselves for the sake of the gospel. All for the sake of his body, which is the church. And we are ready to acknowledge that it's all worth the price for Jesus' sake. Let's bow our heads.